Welcome to Discography, the podcast that obsessively rates and curates the greatest music of all time before the 21st century renders that music obsolete. I say no way, not on our watch. I'm your host, Dave Gebro. Welcome to Cross Part 2. In this episode, we'll be mourning the incredibly exceptional man we all know and love named David Crosby, along with our very special guest, original co-host and man about town, Joe Kennedy. We'll learn about Crosby's work with Crosby and Nash throughout the 70s, his worsening drug dependency, and how he resuscitated his career and truly made up for lost time in the studio before he passed on. Coming up, we have Terry Kirkman and Jules Alexander from The Association rating their entire stellar output, episode one of the John Landis tapes, and a four-part series about the least fortunate acts that played Woodstock called We Are Stardust, We Are Over, including episodes on Sweetwater, Burt Summer, the Keith Hartley Band, and Quill. So don't go anywhere when this episode's done. Subscribe. Here's a couple terrific ways to find out what's coming up around the bend. You can join our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. We're on Instagram and Twitter, too, in case you don't mess with the Zuck. Or you can write to info at discography.com and sign up for our weekly hallowed email list. Lastly, the link to our legendary playlist is in the show notes and also on our website at discography.com. So follow along with us chronologically as we eulogize and mourn the great, great loss of David Crosby to the music world and to the world at large. Tonight will be a break from the format. No ratings, no snarkiness projected at his obvious lesser works, just marveling at the wonder that was this amazing human being. Speaking of this amazing human being and some of the great works that he achieved. Hey, Joe. Hey, Dave. How's it going? You understand because he uh, popularized Hey, Joe. Oh, yeah, that's right. I, I need to talk with you about something. You know, usually we have like an offhanded topic that we kick around before we start the uh, meat and potatoes of the program. But uh, tonight, you know, I really want to discuss this crushing series of blows, uh, all these really major people dying. You know, death obviously is is all around and you can't really get away from it. Can can one? <laughs> no, you cannot. You cannot uh, escape death. For a second, I thought I had an out somehow. Nobody has yet managed to do it. This like, holy shit, uh, domino effect thing started on November 30th with Christine McVie. Right. The taping of this right now is January 30th. So it's in two months to the day we've lost Christine McVie, Angela Badalamenti, Dino Dinelli from The Rascals, Terry Hall of The Specials, Jeff Beck, Lisa Marie Presley, Crosby, and then on January 28th, a couple days ago, Tom Verlaine. Now there's a lot of other people who died in there, but these are the ones who, um, you know, mostly just kind of had a, a big effect on me. I mean, I don't remember a streak of deaths that was this crushing ever in rock history. Yeah, well, we just taped the Crosby thing not long ago. So this is your airing part two of it, but we taped it just a few days after he died. So, and then in the interim since then, Tom Verlaine passes away. So these are kind of both, you know, to me, like Hall of Fame kind of musicians. Um, they're both titans, really, of, you know, completely different areas of the music business and culture at that time. Right back to back, we lose both of them. 
very suddenly, I guess, in both cases. Well, Crosby is very suddenly over the course of decades. Yeah, Tom Verlaine, relatively young, he's 72 or something? 73. 73, right. That one was really depressing for me. I wouldn't say I'm an obsessive because, uh, like a lot of people, I know everything television has done and very little about his solo career. At some point soon, I'll, I'll be getting around to it. But uh, before we actually talk about him specifically, the last few days, you know, I just got here to, to New Jersey to set things up on the East Coast for the show. And, you know, just sort of as a, a bolt of inspiration or a bolt of lightning, it's kind of a reimagining. You and I had this tagline from the beginning of the show about, you know, the objective truth about, you know, the, uh, it's funny, I've said it a million times and I can't remember it off the top of my head. <laughs> I started feeling like this became impetus for a recalculation of what the show is at its core. So I changed the tagline and the focus this is not a kids get off my lawn thing but i think with gen z there's not a reverence for history i'm gonna put it in perspective you know like uh these tom verlaine's popularity was what almost 50 years ago so imagine if we were in our 20s and the 90s it would be like something from the 1940s or something you know yeah like like all of a sudden we get super into the andrew sisters or chubby checker or something it's a little bit different because i think once the rock and roll era started that's kind of like a modern era it seems to be a common jumping off point for all the sort of recent generations but we're getting pretty far away from 1970 whatever but do you think i mean obviously we can't exchange ears and hear from someone else's point of view but does this stuff do you think uh, there's anything about it that feels antiquated? No, not not at all. I don't think anything about television is. I mean, I think it's you know you'll hear that influence of Tom Verlaine and that style of guitar playing. I think forever, really. From all accounts, uh, a bit spectrumy and mm -hmm. apparently very difficult guy to be in a band with. But I'm sure there are elements of all four guys in television or five, if you count Richard Hell, that made it difficult to be in a band with them. But that first television record, you know, my opinions on television are the least controversial imaginable. <laughs> Marquee Moon's a masterpiece. Adventure is a solid record, a little bit underrated. The Blow Up is a great live album. The Reformation record is okay. And that's that's pretty much everyone's opinion. Yeah, I Adventure kind of grows on me um, the older I get. I kind of find myself going back to that one a lot more just because Marquee Moon is so burned into my memory. I feel like I know every little corner of Marquee Moon from hearing it so many times and adventure kind of sounds like a new listen to me often because i haven't really gone back to that one as much the dream's dream has always hit me as a, a great song the third one the reunion one that they did what was like in the 80s or something 1990 right that one never really got its teeth into me i can't every time i listen to it i end up just kind of turning it off right away but maybe i should really give it a good hard listen you know what's um, funny is yeah i saw them i saw television a few years ago uh, and it was a great show. Richard Lloyd was not a part of the band, so in some ways it, it barely counts. But I did see them 30 years ago, and I have no recollection of it. Rick Kronberg of Rick's Backyard fame, uh, <laughs> he reminded me yesterday that we saw them. They apparently were terrible, and we left. Yeah. And apparently my comment was, it feels like they're playing shuffleboard. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, nothing can take away the majesty of the early stuff. And plus, if you really want to cut it down and really want to talk about the beginning of New York punk and punk in America, it starts with Patti Smith and television. Yeah, well, that whole style of, of like what became, I guess, sort of like indie rock after that sort of clean guitar, those kind of snaky lines. 
that sort of, you know, style of not punk or really rock even style of guitar playing sometimes. This kind of linear style of playing that became really common after them. Sonic Youth, obviously, is like a obvious direct descendant. And then everything that came from that, that alone, it's a whole vocabulary of guitar that really came from Marky Moon and a whole kind of direction for a certain type of music. But the record itself also, the songwriting is also really incredible. It's Not staggering. Just, you know, Marky Moon really is the one that really has that focus and is has everything that makes them great. The other one, Adventure, is kind of like where you go once you've kind of exhausted from the first. You know. And um, even the first record is not perfect. I mean, uh, that last song, talk about a skipper. Right. You know, the great moments on it. And I mean, 80% of it, at least, is perfect, is really something to marvel at. I'd be lying if I said it wasn't thoroughly depressing, because this stuff is receding into the rear view, and there's really no curatorial movement on this generation's part. You know, I, I just was looking at some lineups of some upcoming festival shows. You know, I can't help but feel, as a music lover, just a sense of complete despondency. Well, I don't know. I kind of work with younger musicians from time to time, and I find that yeah. those those people kind of have a knowledge of history, and they have it all at their fingertips. It's very easy to find. So if you are so inclined to know your past history and to be interested in older records, it's very easy to do that. I think there is maybe more of that than you think, at least among other musicians, maybe not so much in the culture. I wouldn't say that the interest is completely waning in those in those great records. Well, that's, that's good. I mean, you know, I know that uh, toward that way of thinking you just uh, took part in a pretty massive musical event as far as uh bringing the discography to touch to the multitudes here <laughs> yeah, so i co-wrote and played most of the instruments on the uh, opening track to the new lil yachty record the song's called the black seminole and then also on the outro of the album, the last little coda on, on the very last song is also me. Um, just the coda part on the last song. So the beginning and the end of the record is me, and it's gotten incredible reception, both the track and the record overall. Um, I don't know if you saw the other day Questlove posted about it. Um, I think yeah, today, I, I think this morning. Yeah, he, he, Questlove posted a rapturous post about the record, about how it's getting him excited about music again. And um, so, yeah, this is a pretty cool thing to be a part of. You play everything except for drums. Yeah. Including a shredding fucking top of Mount Olympus type guitar solo that is more dramatic than Slash Outside the Chapel in November Rain. <laughs> and it's really a stunning piece of work. Now, I got to tell you that, you know, sometimes you send stuff to me and, you know, it's somebody else's work, but you're playing on it. So I can dispassionately say, uh, you know, great job. Everything sounds good. I am not the market for Lil Yachty. And I loved the song. I loved it. There was sort of equal parts Luther Vandross and both uh, Pink Floyd Echoes and Great Gig in the Sky. You know, to be able to pepper his aesthetic with these kinds of things is incredibly exciting as far as toning down the Hey Kids, Get Off My Lawn. The track is, is pretty conventionally like a psych rock kind of track. It's definitely like, you know, rock, like live band instrumentation. Then his vocal really kind of takes it into like a futuristic kind of space. It feels like when he comes in with the very saturated, auto-tuned vocal, it's just, it's it's very, um, very trippy and transportive to me. I hope to hear a lot more of that kind of stuff 
uh, from you, and I'm super psyched you got to be involved with that. As Thurston Moore once, I, I met him at a, a Burger King uh, after seeing him with uh, open for Neil Young the, and Sonic Youth open for Neil Young in 1991. After talking with him for a little while, he signed my notebook. The kids are still all right. 91. <laughs> nice. That's definitely the vibe here. He's a, you know, Yachty and the uh, producers of this record. I mean, you know, my my good friend Justin Raisin is one of the producers on this, and they took a big chance making a record like this. And um, I think it's really paid off. It seems like there's a lot of excitement about it. Yeah, I'm psyched to see what happens with it. And it takes a little bit of the sting out of every single person on the planet that meant something at one point dropping dead on us. They're going to keep coming. I think the next 10 years is going to be uh, horrifying to to try to take this in. But all we can do is enshrine these, uh, these records, these artists, and keep passing it forward in the culture through Joe Kennedy's pen. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, onward and upward then. So, Joe, where we left off with Cross One was his 1971 solo LP, If I Could Only Remember My Name, and the amazing existence of the almost mythologically cool Pero, the Planet Earth Rock and Roll Orchestra. So what occurs after this is Crosby and Nash. So as a duo, these two release four studio albums and two live albums, including Another Stony Evening, which has, has the two of them in a 1971 acoustic performance. Besides the records they put out, the two of them had pretty lucrative careers as session musicians, and they contributed a, a tons of harmonies and background vocals to, let's see, Joni Mitchell, Jackson Brown, Dave Mason, James Taylor, most notably Mexico, uh, Art Garfunkel, J.D. Souther, Carol King, Elton John on Blue Moves, and Gary Wright. I mean, they were all over the place. Sure. Yeah. They could sing. Yeah. Uh, they were good, man. Like uh, wind on the water. So that first record, let's talk about his contributions. He had three contributions to the album Graham Nash and David Crosby. And out of the five, I would say that three of them are super solid. You know, the first track on the record that he contributes is called Whole Cloth. And I yeah. feel like that's the first song ever that he contributes to a record that's really not very good. <laughs> well, it sort of feels like we've entered the teeth of the 1970s here. This has that after-party kind of thing to it. It's sort of like, uh, we all need to cool out, man, kind of way. <laughs> the, see the sort of soft rock kind of creeping in. It's a little bit of kind of some jazzy MOR kind of things going on in there. So the coolness factor, maybe a little little lower on that one. On that song, you mean? Or on the, that song, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The strong stuff on this is fantastic. I mean, Where Will I Be is amazing. That's a really yeah, so that song we'll we'll get to this like we'll touch on this I guess a little bit later. He kind of like makes a comeback in the 2000s and like the teens and gets very prolific and writes a lot of songs. And a lot of those things are kind of they're like this kind of thing. That sort of well, plaintive acoustic thing. Not as good as this, but in that in that in that style. The problem for me with that with that stuff is that he's folding in some steely danish vibe. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. So it waters down the intensity of it f for me, 
But on the best stuff he does in his more recent records, it does away with the jazzy soft rock stuff and focuses on what he does best. Where Will I Be is super haunting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, very pretty song. Yeah, and then Page 43, even better. I love Page 43. That's my favorite song, probably on any of these Nash Crosby records. That's kind of a hidden gem of a song. Yeah, I like that one a lot. Nice ballad, very nice ballad. Games is pretty solid, too. It's okay. That's a sort of a yeah, that's it, that's a it's pretty standard cross kind of drone song. Deep cut, deep cut there. It's not going to go on the playlist, but it's a it's a solid song. The wall song is actually was something he'd attempted a number of times with Perro from his solo record. Uh, this is a great song. The wall song's great. Yeah, and it's Jerry Garcia, Bill Kreutzmann, and Phil Lesh are the uh, rhythm section. So it may have interest to you for those reasons. If you are a fan of the dead, it's buried at the back of the album. It's like the next to last song or something. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit of the feel to me. If like, if I can only remember my name, right. where it's kind of uh, all about the vibe of it more so than the songwriting, but it has a very nice vibe and very nice playing. Yeah. It's because it came out of those sessions and you can, you can definitely discern it at this point. Cross is really feeling himself at the end of 1972. Uh, the birds get back together for a reunion. And I think my guess is that, you know, after they'd kicked him out so harshly, he wanted to kind of have his revenge by A, taking over everything, and B, by getting them so stoned that they couldn't really function. That, by all <laughs> accounts, that's what happened. He right. swooped in with like mind blowingly good weed. The Birds reunion record is known as a colossal belly whopper. Yeah, it doesn't really pan out. It sounds very half hearted. It doesn't sound like the Birds at all, really. No, that's the and main problem. It doesn't have the magic at There's all. One great thing about the Birds self titled uh, reunion record, and that is the resurgence of Gene Clark. Right. The Crosby songs are kind of eh. The Crosby songs, uh, you know, you got. Joni Mitchell's For Free, which is not his song. Laughing, which we'd already heard a better version Much of. better version, right? And then Long Live the King, which is just not a good song, really. Yep, I have the so, exact words in my notes. Not a good song. Not a good song. <laughs> so, yeah. What happens next is CSNY reunite in the summer of 73 for unsuccessful recording sessions in both Maui and LA. Despite all this having gone down, they got together at a Stills concert at Winterland in October of 73. And this was a prelude to their tour of the summer of 74. Very successful tour. Very. So this is, is this the first stadium tour? I don't know exactly, but it's at the beginning of that era where things are moving into these giant venues and the PAs are getting more sophisticated and and things of that nature. So it's in the early days of those big shows. I remember, you know, all kinds of notions about it without having needed to go back and re-research. They had like uh, silk pillowcases that they had to have for every hotel. And then Joni Mitchell had uh, painted this thing that had to be embroidered on every pillowcase, I believe. You know, real serious bloat. Some brown M&M shit. You know, they didn't have a new record to push. After the tour, they attempted to record a new record, which was going to be called Human Highway. But uh, apparently just constant bickering, really unpleasant, and the album was canceled. Instead, what comes out is a greatest hits. So you have two albums and a greatest hits. 
that was baffling to me from as far back as I can remember. <laughs> it's amazing they really got anything done. The amount of egos that are involved and the personalities that are involved, mainly Cross. He's, he's mainly the one that's the hardest to deal with. It's not that surprising. They're so massively successful and they all have their own interests and, you know, everyone's high on drugs and not surprising in retrospect that they couldn't hold it together that well. It's kind of easier to go on the road and, you know, go play a show every night than to try to create something together is a lot more stressful, I think. In all fairness, and I think Crosby would be the one probably to uh, not only agree with this, but to bring it up, is that he was lazy. Um, yeah. I mean, whatever you want to call it, I don't know. He wasn't prolific, let's say, but he was probably, yeah. in, in all likelihood, he was probably, quote unquote, enjoying his success too much to be a consistent writer. But to me, it, it never really mattered because, you know, most of the time when he would shoot for the stars, he'd hit them. Wind on the Wire is the Wind first the place where things get kind of wobbly for me. He's got a couple of really good contributions, but there's six songs that he has a hand in writing. Two of them co-writes, four solo songs, and there's only two of them I really care about. Carry Me is a classic. That's the highlight of the album. Yeah, it is the highlight of the album. So it has the big soaring chorus. That's cool. This, yeah. They're kind of getting into wallpaper mode here in this one. Yeah, they um, are. They are. And even the good stuff is still, you know, there's a turn. There's a turn and it kind of feels like M.O.R. singer-songwriter stuff. Even Naked in the Rain, which is, to me, the only other good song that Crosby contributed, and it's a co-write with Nash. This is kind of the beginning of his jazzy soft rock era. Yeah, well, the the band on this, this is I really appreciate the musicians on this record. These are this is classic '70s session guy Danny Korchmar, Russ Kunkel, Leland Sklar, David Lindley. They're heavily featured, especially David Lindley's guitar playing. He has a lot of kind of solo spotlight moments. The record is cool in that regard. I really love that kind of stuff, that kind of playing. It may not be everybody's cup of tea, but yeah, great players on this. But yeah, it's there's a sort of like a sameness to. A lot of this, and it is getting into the jazz bow MOR kind of easy listening kind of not zone. going in the right direction. Yeah. And one thing I would like to point out is that I believe Homeward Through the Haze is a real sad waste of a great song title. Yeah, that one seemed like it's kind of like he's trying to do a Joni thing there and not really pulling it off. It's like it would have been yeah. a very bad song on Court and Spark or something. Right. Not his proudest moment, but not bad. I mean, there's enough good stuff on there. In 76, you had Crosby and Nash doing their thing and Stills and Young doing their thing. And the whole thing apparently was a mess, especially Stills and Young. So what happened was they were working separately as two duos. They thought about retooling everything to produce a CSNY record. And unsurprisingly, that ended bitterly <laughs> as Stills and Young deleted Crosby and Nash's vocals from Long May You Run. The four of those guys did not perform together again until Live Aid. And then after that, they only performed sporadically in the 80s and 90s. Whistling Down the Wire, that's got some great Crosby stuff on it. Yeah, these that one and the previous one, the Wind and the Water one, kind of blend together a little bit for me. Yeah, um, but there's good stuff on both. Same, A lot of the same players. David Lindley, again, featured on this a lot. He's a really great player. There's beautiful slide stuff and everything. There's a couple that have the nice, their nice harmonies. Broken Bird's a cool song. Yeah, um, I, I'm not a big fan of Broken Bird. Time After Time, nice ballad. Cool. But um, the two that stand out to me are Taken It All, which to me is a towering, tremendous achievement. And I don't know why it's not mentioned 
more often. I think it's the best ever Crosby Nash co-write. Yeah, I could see that. That one has some of the CSN kind of magic to it. The harmony blend and the style of chords. You could envision that one on one of the CSN records. Um, and it was performed by them. There's there's extant versions of the three of them doing it, and it's gorgeous. It's not as good as this version, but it's a great song. And then, That one has a little bit of the old magic, I would say. Yeah. I think it has all of the old magic. Dancer is an instrumental, five-minute instrumental, again, from the Tamil Pass High at about three songwriting books. Right. So you got, like, scatting, even growling happening in it. And uh -huh. I think Dancer is a worthwhile follow-up to that kind of songwriting it's great yeah the players again are all really good a lot of big showcase for david lindley and that as well so yeah these guys are all you know something like they're having fun playing all the top call guys that was 1976 now we're in 1977 and the very long-awaited csn record comes out all three of his contributions are hitting our playlist i like everything he did on this it's not as good a record as the work that they had previously done but shadow captain is a co-write with Craig. How do you pronounce his last name? Dwerge? I don't even know. Good question. <laughs> anyway, it's a co-write. Uh, Shadow, Cap Shadow Captain is a is a pretty sick co-write. It's good stuff. It leads off the record, and it's worthy of that. Uh, anything at all? It's a bit listless and lethargic, but hey, so was he at that point. That's probably my favorite one that he contributed. It seems like the most personal one. Same with In My Dreams, another solid one. Well, this record was massively huge commercially. It went quadruple platinum. So they really are a big thing still in 77. This is where I kind of lose interest in them a little bit. Yeah. And and, and uh, this is kind of like a kind of a turning point where it starts to get to be a slog for me. I think you probably like this better than I do. No, I don't. I don't really love this album. I don't love this album either, but I like mm -hmm. this album. Yeah, it's okay, I guess. I don't know. I probably wouldn't really find myself going back to it. There's no meaning in this. It's a collection of songs. Yeah. It's nice to hear them sing together and when they, it's, they, have, they still have the ability to, to, you know, to make that great harmony blend. But it's, it's, it's to me not really a huge artistic triumph, even though it was you know a huge commercial hit. To me, this is the end of CSN because we'll talk about Daylight again in a second. But you know they continued performing live, and since 1982, since Daylight again in '82, they released four albums of new material. You had in 1988 American Dream with Neil Young, then mm. in 1990 Live It Up, 1994 After the Storm, and 1999 Looking Forward again with Neil Young. Also. Crosby and Nash released a self-titled album in 2004. The reason why I'm bringing that up now is because we're not touching on any of those records. Yeah, they had a couple more big hits after the 1977 album. They had Wasted on the Way, right? And then Southern Cross. Wasted on the Way was kind of a legit hit. Southern Cross may be kind of a minor hit. Yeah, those later ones, starting with the American Dream album, I feel like kind of were pretty much ignored at the time. I never bothered listening to, I believe I never bothered listening to any of these records because I know after a certain point, the material just doesn't have any interest for me personally. Yeah, I remember the American Dream record because I worked at a record store at the time. It must have come out in 88 or 89 because I definitely remember when it came out. Yeah, because there's the, like hot dogs uh, on the cover of the record. The older employees would often spin that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I want to mention on Daylight Again that Delta is on that one. Delta it kind of ends act one for me as far as Crosby's career goes. Delta is a really good song, I think. It's also kind of 
like <laughs> that's kind of it for quite a long time creatively for him yeah it's like a piano ballad that's his one tune on the record yeah he's not really super engaged with writing at this time no no but but th- it's amazing that he was able to squeeze that out of himself at that time yeah then it's just life taking over basically at this point you know he's been a junkie for years and now it's all about the drugs so in 1985 Cross spent nine months in a Texas state prison after being convicted of several drugs and weapons offenses. And the drug charges, by the way, were related to heroin and cocaine. Then later in 85, he was arrested in California for drunken driving, a hit and run driving accident, and possession of a concealed pistol and drug paraphernalia. Um, he sort of becomes a punchline. He's sort of like a notorious public junkie, sort of like what he's known for during this yeah, period. Yeah, during this period, he's kind of a, a joke. He was at least considered to be kind of a joke. In May 87, probably the most important thing that ever happened to him went down. He was 45 years old. He married Jan Dance, uh, who was then 35. They remained together throughout the rest of his life. She seemed to be the force that he needed to, at least after he unfortunately and admittedly regrettably got her addicted to heroin along with himself. Uh, They got clean together. And by all accounts, she was like the greatest thing that ever happened to him. Right. In 1989, at least in title, an answer record to, if I could only remember my name, oh, yes, I can. So, (laughs) uh, yes, I can comes out. I didn't really want to talk about any of the music on it. It's not my style. 1993, Thousand Roads, another solo thing. Again, not my style. He doesn't record a solo album for a long time after that. It was actually 21 years. Cross comes out. So, no music uh, solo during this time. For some Uh, reason, uh, that that Cross album has Wilford Brimley on the cover. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> you know, when he said almost cut my hair, he really should have stuck to his guns. <laughs> um, that's a ridiculous like a album cover. Boy haircut. It's just the funniest album cover. I mean, it's the instant I saw it, I just instantly burst out laughing. Very funny to me. I mean, it's just his face, but it's like kind of this close up picture of his, his face kind of fills the whole frame. He mounts a comeback though with that album and then it consistently stays recording, makes an album like every other year or two from then on the rest of his life. Just want to talk about a few more life things that happened. In 94, he got a liver transplant, which Phil Collins paid for. In 97, he found his son that he had given up for adoption in, in 1962, uh, named James Raymond, and, you know, started performing with him. The best thing about the music that they created, I think, is the name of the band, CPR. <laughs> Crosby had three other children, but, you know, this thing where he reconnected with James Raymond seemed to be a really important piece of the puzzle for him. And then, I don't know if you know about this, Joe, I didn't until I researched it. End of 97, beginning of 98, Ethan Crosby, his brother, who had taught him to play guitar and started his musical career with him, he killed himself. I didn't Uh, know that. Yeah, he killed himself in either late 97 or early 98. The date is unknown because Ethan left a note not to search for his body. It was found months later in May 98. In 2000, you have the whole Melissa Etheridge thing, which is so weird to me. So weird because the son that they had died at 21 years old in opiate addiction thing. Yes, right. It just is so sad because you're pretty much going to get the addict gene if David Crosby's your dad. Strong gene. You don't, you dodge the 10-ton bullet. That whole thing is just hard. 
horrible. I wonder how much of it, like knowing that David Crosby is his father, um, added that's, to the. That's interesting because uh, it was publicized. You know, it was it was obviously known from the time the child was born. Well, yeah. Do you remember the cover of Rolling Stone? I just remember it being a story. I don't remember specifically that, but I remember it being you know a lot of uh, punchlines to a lot of jokes. Late night, like Jay Leno or whatever would joke about it or whatever. In two thousand four, Crosby was uh, arrested, charged with criminal possession of a weapon in the third degree, illegal possession of a hunting knife, illegal possession of ammunition and illegal possession of about an ounce of marijuana. So still getting in trouble, but he got off. How the fuck do you get off from? What do you think? What does he think he's going to do with the knife and the gun? Well, he actually, he left that shit behind at a hotel room. Still, why does he have it? What's he, what's he think he's going to do with it? I I don't know, but you would think that the weaponry would be born from the paranoia that one gleans from addiction. I guess so. I guess Uh, someone's going to break in and take his drugs or something. Yeah. I don't know what happened there, but, uh, <laughs> hey, lads and ladies, Dave Gebro here. I abandoned my career and moved my family 3,000 miles to be able to focus exclusively on discography. And so, if you're like me and enough is just never enough, then please visit patreon.com/slash discography and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. Discography is an entirely listener-supported show, and it's also intended to be a three times a week music deep dive experience so do us both a favor and consider giving it a shot trust me i'm working hard for the money so hard for it honey there's the main show on sunday a thursday wild card episode which is either an interview with that week's guest or an offshoot show like rock Cousteau and queasy listening and then on tuesdays there's the humdinger of them all discography's the private press with paul major you got nothing to lose. If you don't dig it after a month, you're refunded. No questions asked. Once again, that's patreon.com slash discography. So, you know, all of the, the, the renaissance of his career, all those records, I've heard them all. And there's nothing I really don't like. I flipped through them a little bit for this. And um, they, they're they all, you know, for a guy his age who was out of the game for so long, they're all perfectly pleasant. I would think those records probably ha- would have an audience. I love Lighthouse. That one, I really like the first song on that. The first song on Lighthouse, Things We Do For Love, is, is the, the favorite thing I heard out of all of those, just flipping around those. That one caught my ear kind of right away. I like everything on that record because there's less of that jazzy soft rock thing that it seems like his song is really enamored with James Raymond seems to love all that you know and Donald Fagan and all that stuff I don't like when he does that but this stuff feels like a true successor to if I could only remember my name yeah it's a more acoustic based less kind of slick a lot of that like kind of plaintive kind of folk he kind of hinted at this in the early 70s the songs are all you know for, in general very pretty you know not a lot of rough edges on them some good melodies here and there it's not really for me I I, I appreciate that he's he is making them yeah. It's inspiring that he stayed so productive in that phase of his life, that he was still that that motivated to make music. They all have, I think, a real kind of level of effort to them that I think shows through. You get a really strong sense of a guy frantically trying to make up for lost time. Yeah. Yeah. They're all fine. Not really my thing, but they're definitely I, not bad. I, I believe they're all fine, except for Lighthouse, which I'm going to include in its entirety on the on the playlist. Because I think it's a great, it's the best example of his latter era songwriting capabilities. Um, mm. He's got a couple of solo rights in there, but a lot of them are co-writes with, I think he's working with Snarky Puppy at this point. Yeah, I know the last couple of records, I think that Snarky Puppy was involved. Cross is 2014. Lighthouse is 2006. 
2016. Then there's a record in 2017, 2018, and 2021. Pretty good use of time there. The Sky Trails in 2017, I would like to mention a song I'm going to be putting on the playlist, Home Free. And what I love about this song is it's a really soft, gentle slide into home base from all the years of self-abuse and junkiedom. The love of being home and, you know, of domestic warmth, it's a great song. I didn't really deep dive into this later period. Um, I, I did find it to be kind of samey. It is, it is. The last thing I'm going to have on the playlist, in 2018, he did Hear If You Listen, which, again, I, I totally agree with you. It had does have a sameness, but there's a song called 1967. Without knowing, I believe what it is, is one of those, like, scatting demos that he had in 67. Uh-huh. The, you know, the rest of his band just, you know, started, uh, they left it alone, and then they kind of come in halfway through and ride it home, mm-hmm. and it's really cool. Um, this is the great thing about being a guest on the show instead of the co-host, is that when I feel like tapping out, I can just tap out. <laughs> yeah. Yep. This stuff, you know, no matter how you feel about it, it's at least a guy, he's he's trying. You can hear that. He's definitely not embarrassing himself. No, he's not. Definitely not embarrassing himself. And I think holding his own, I find it inspiring and impressive that he had such a love for music that he worked this hard at this stage in his life to, to get these records done. He was working on uh, on a new record up until the day he died, apparently. So in July 2021, his final studio album came out during his lifetime for free. Again, extending the Joni accolades because, man, that song is really woven its way, not just the song, but Joni. His respect and admiration for her is never-ending. Followed by the release of the 50th anniversary expanded edition of If I Could Only Remember My Name in October of uh, 2021. Then Crosby's final release is a live album called Live at the Capitol Theater, which was released in October of 2022. <clears throat> so toward the end, what characterized Crosby? I mean, he had a cannabis brand. Did you know that? I saw that in your notes there. Yeah, the, <laughs> I wasn't aware of that. It's pretty clear cut. I mean, this is a guy who's California sober. You know, he gave up the heroin, the cocaine, apparently, but uh, never once did he think about giving up smoking weed, I don't think. And he said, all those hit songs, every one of them, I wrote them all on cannabis. He stayed in good voice, too. Um, his voice still sounds strong on all those records. Some of our aging rockers from the 60s, their voice kind of turns into a croak, but he could still how sing. Did, how is he nice. able to hit those high notes? All the weed smoking he's done, it's insane that he still sounds like John Anderson. Um, yeah, I don't know. He just has a real kind of uh, easy delivery singing. He's usually not like a high effort kind of singer. He's usually kind of just sings yeah. like in a very free and easy kind of style he stayed in good voice right up until the end I, I think so you know the magic trick that he performed is that these days you can't say anything without people getting all up in your ass i mean look at fucking pink floyd just did a you know about the 50th anniversary yes it's amazing it's insane yeah. and yet somehow i have no fucking idea how he was able to do this for years and years he's been cantankerous and irascible on twitter and people love it he doesn't take himself that seriously i feel like i feel like he's gonna say what he's gonna say and it's like hey if you don't like it go fuck yourself you know he, he kind of has that attitude really about it kind of had the famous dust up with phoebe bridgers and all that i found him to be kind of lovable i love him because he hated the doors <laughs> he fucking, you know you know he rained a constant shitstorm down on jim morrison uh, i didn't really know that i know he had this he made some unfortunate comments about daryl hannah that i think he probably regretted neil was very kind in his eulogy and he called crosby the the soul of csny and he was yeah 
Yeah, I think um, it's, but for the most part, I, I like we kind of touched on it earlier in the intro. It's he was kind of still with us, still on the scene, kind of. He was still a guy you would talk about. He wasn't really forgotten. He was still yeah. a part of the culture. You know, he followed discography. I would wind up crossing paths with him more regularly than I expected to, and I was always trying to lure him into doing something. <laughs> right. You know what I really wanted to do more than anything was to do a show about Pero with him. It would have been an amazing thing, but unfortunately it never happened. I'd have to say that the last music death that hit me this hard was Carl Wilson. I think that was 96. Oh, wow. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Carl Wilson died. I cried. There isn't a single music-related person who passed away since then that made me cry, including Crosby. But I wake up, and it's like one of my first thoughts is, I, I can't believe he passed away. And it's not going away yet. It's a tough one for me. I mean, what a life. He really did a lot in there. Really yeah. made the most of his time. Even though his songwriting career could have been more prolific, he says, did so many other things, too, besides just the songwriting shows kind of one aspect. We didn't really also mention he claims to be, and I guess is, the person who popularized the song Hey Joe. Yeah, not a huge fan of Hey Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I'd imagine that you're a much less big fan of Hey Joe than I am, even. Um, it's fine. People say that to me all the time. Hey Joe, where are you going with that gun in your hand? Hilarious. Yeah, it's great. It's so funny. Now there's literally n not a single reason to be on Twitter. You know, it's a big big loss. It's a big, big hole in the music industry. And it's just really sad to me because it really felt like the guy was going to live forever. The fact that he made it to 81s obviously a stone cold miracle. Um, and, you know, it really over the past few days has made me think that because these kinds of guys are, are dying off, that the show should maybe be more specifically about and for and including people like David, people like Terry Kirkman and Jules Alexander from the association who were in their 80s. It's of crucial importance that this music lives on because without this, all we have is a bunch of SoundCloud rappers and whatever else is dotting the pitchfork vomit landscape at the moment. SoundCloud rappers are kind of over at this point. It's Let's not really a thing anymore. Over again then. You know, there was Elvis, then there was music like this that Crosby and others like him were creating out of thin air. It never gets old for me. Everyone listening to this, to this show right now, it never gets old for you. And so we got to do everything we can to enshrine this stuff and to live in it. I agree. There's not really a, another equivalent that's quite like Crosby, who floats amongst so many different scenes and ties them all together, sort of like the way he does. He's rarely the guy in the lead up front, but he's always there just kind of making everything better. He's kind of like adding to, adding his voice and good taste. If he touches what you do, it ineffably has a Crosby-esque flavor to it. Yeah, it's a unique kind of talent that he has. This unique ability to sort of blend in and to just sort of improve everything that he's kind of involved with. We're really going to miss him. It's a real sadness. You know, the music really does live on definitely hit up the playlist it's uh, pretty astounding joe i want to thank you so much for coming on and doing this with me wouldn't miss it i appreciate that that just about does it thank you so much for joining us a heartfelt discography thanks goes out to our graphic designer todd zimmer my beautiful wife and son jen and mason joe kennedy of course 
who is a powerhouse entertainer on his of his own right, and the entire Patreon community. I love you, and this show would not exist without you. Be sure to stay tuned, because this Tuesday brings upon us another incredible episode of Discography's The Private Press with Paul Major, this time about a Long Beach outfit, Long Beach, California, that is, called Creation of Sunlight, that did a nifty trick by combining splendorific candy-colored harmonies with acid rock not to mention of course this thursday's wild card episode as well which is going to be episode two of rick's backyard a discussion of rem's document of course as well you're going to want to tune in a week from today for the very first part of we are stardust we are over which is about four woodstock acts that didn't quite do so well after the show this one's about sweetwater with band expert corbin betleon and that'll be right here in the place where we keep a very strong watch on the greatest performers and writers of all time because we gotta stick with them just as they stuck with us because we're that kind of loyal stay gold joe kennedy it's discography bye everybody